So we're going we're gonna to be in Daniel for two more Sundays, even as we are in the season of Advent. And then, and then we'll spend two Sundays in Advent. Um, and we're in Daniel chapter 3 today and next Sunday. One of my favorite movies growing up, and many of you know I didn't grow up here, but in my latter years, one of my favorite movies growing up was the movie Chariots of Fire. Anybody see that movie? Of course you've seen it. Who hasn't seen it, right? Chariots of Fire. And to me, I had to, I had to, I had to go back and, and, and remember and think about that movie, which of course is about Eric Liddell, the Scottish missionary to China who won a gold medal in the 1924 Paris Olympics. He, I think, as I think about modern day examples of Daniel and somebody who embodied what we're talking about in the book of Daniel, Eric Liddell, I think more than anybody embodies it. He, if you remember, engaged his culture by what? Do you remember? Running. One of the best runners ever. And he used actually celebrity as a runner to engage the culture because people f- would come from miles away just to, just to see him run. And after the meets, he would share the gospel and talk to people who were interested in it. And one of the most amazing parallels to Daniel, actually, is a part about where he drew the line. In the book of Daniel, we saw Daniel drawing the line in the most unlikely place. Do you remember in Daniel chapter 1 where he refuses to eat the royal food? Liddell actually drew the line, if you remember the movie, by refusing to run on what? Sunday. Because those heats that would qualify for the, meet, for, the, for the race that he would win fell on Sundays. And, if you see, and there are people that bashed him, called him, you know, unpatriotic, so on and so forth. And some of them criticized him because they're like, he is just overly zealous about this rule of not doing anything on Sunday. But in fact, what the story reveals is that Liddell didn't want running to become the idol in his life. He refused to let running become, and one of the most famous lines, of course, is when he tells his sister, when I run, I feel what? God's pleasure. Here's a guy who ran, not for his own glory, but for God's. His rival, however, do you remember? Was a guy named Harold Abrams. And there is this scene where Harold Abrams is getting, like, you know, treated before the race that he thinks is going to define his life. And I actually wrote this on PowerPoint because this is beautiful writing. They don't make movies like this anymore, by the way. Okay? You know what I'm saying? This is beautiful writing. And he says this, Harold Abrams, the night before his race. And so I think it's going to be up on the screen. And now, in one hour's time, I will be out there again. I will raise my eyes and look down that corridor, four feet wide, with 10 lonely seconds to justify my existence. But will I? 10 lonely seconds to justify my existence. 10 seconds to prove my worth. 10 seconds to show the world that I'm somebody. 10 seconds to know that I have worth, I have value. 
10 seconds to justify my existence. Church, can I ask you something? About what are you saying that? Come on. About what are you and I saying that in our lives right now? This justifies my existence. This proves my worth. This proves my value. And I've been buck naked transparent with you guys. I think most of my life, most of my ministry at New Communion is saying, for me, it's been ministry. It's being a pastor. It's this, it's this ongoing struggle in my life to say, I'm a good pastor. That's what justifies my existence. I'm a good preacher. That's what justifies my worth. What are you saying that about? What are you and I saying that about this morning as we sit here? This justifies my existence. I'm a good parent. I get good grades. Oh, I work for justice. I care about the poor. I am helpful to people. I'm getting a PhD degree. I'm in ministry. I'm smart. I'm beautiful. And do you not, do I not see that building our lives on these things is unsustainable? Do you not see like Hey Rollers sitting there going, this is what makes me a person of worth. Whatever that is, is going to haunt you, make you anxious, make you angry, make you bitter, make you. Because it has no power to anchor you and sustain you. See, the good news for those of us who follow Jesus is that we have something better, don't we? We have something better, don't we? Because it wasn't just 10 seconds, but it was six hours on a Friday afternoon. For six hours on a Friday afternoon, Jesus hangs on the cross to tell you what your worth is. To tell you what your value is. To tell you what it is that justifies you and me. To why we're here and what our purpose is. In this entire series, see, this is the thing that I've been coming to grips with. This entire series, I am beginning to realize just really the question of how many of us at our core, when we talk about what it means to follow Jesus and be distinct biblically, how many of us are genuinely living our lives from this perspective that says, Jesus Christ is my justification? And how many other of us attend church, go to small groups, all kinds of things, but at the core of our being, of all these other things. Being a follower of Jesus and being distinct as a Christian in our culture today has very little to do with external conformity to rules and regulations. It is this. What anchors you? What is your foundation? What is your justification? We're in the book of Daniel and... Uh, we're in chapter, end of chapter, we're in chapter three today, but I want to look at end of chapter two. Daniel's exilic literature, it's written to a people who find themselves in a pagan pluralistic culture and they're trying to figure out how do I live distinctly Christian lives here. And I want to take you to end of chapter two as we begin chapter three. By the way, as you know, Bible wasn't written with chapters and verses, you know, that's what editors put in. 
we didn't go to chapter 2. At chapter 2, end of chapter 2, what we find is, remember, Nebuchadnezzar, the Todd king, has a dream. Nobody's able to interpret it. He says, everybody's going to die unless you're able to interpret it. Daniel is able to interpret the dream. And this is what we find. In the end of chapter 2, verse 46, then King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honor and ordered that an offering and incense be presented to him. The king said to Daniel, surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and the revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery. Then the king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished many gifts on him. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all its wise men. Now listen to guys. End of chapter 2 and beginning of chapter 3, scholars say there was a lag of about nine years. Let me ask you a question. Is Nebuchadnezzar a believer at the end of chapter 2? As we come to the close of chapter 2, it seems as though the king has had an encounter with God and has been changed. But in chapter 3, as we're going to see, the king erects a golden statue and forces all the people in the kingdom to bow down to it or else face death. What do we learn? Real quick, and we'll come back to Nebuchadnezzar later. It's possible to be convicted by the gospel and yet never be converted. It's possible that you could encounter the majesty of God, be awed by splendor. It's possible to be charmed but never changed. It's like Herod. King Herod, we're going to look at. Bible says he loved listening to John the Baptist. And yet his heart was never changed. There are some of us who come week after week after week after week, who are involved in small group after small group after small group, small group who get convicted and convicted and convicted, but never, ever be converted. Why? One reason, give me like one minute on this, is because many of us live, I've said this before, on what's called secondhand spirituality. You're feeding off of other people's spiritual lives. Let me tell you something. I don't care how long you've been coming to church. I don't care how long you've called yourself a Christian. If the only source of spiritual sustenance for you is when you come on a Sunday, listen to a sermon, or go to small groups, if you are dependent on other people to feed you, you may have been convicted but never been converted. At some point, you have to take ownership of your own spiritual life. Do you know how many, I'm put this in quotes, Christians I meet who've been in church all their lives and yet they don't know how to feed themselves and grow spiritually? This is why people in our church, I've heard people go, oh, I'm not growing here anymore. Listen, I'm the furthest thing from the best preacher. 
We don't have the most awesome small groups. We've got all kinds of discipleship things we could do better. But when I hear people go, I'm not growing here anymore, and they go elsewhere, what often, listen, what often happens is when people go, oh, I'm growing spiritually here, it's just the newness of the environment. It just goes, oh, this feels new. If that's you, you're going to jump from church to church to church to church. Listen, at some point, you have to take ownership of your own spiritual life. Let me ask you something. Do you have a personal relationship with Jesus? Are you in the word? Do you pray? Are there vital signs? Okay, I have to move on. I'm sorry. Actually, I'm not sorry. I don't know why I said that. I'm not sorry. I'm sorry I took so long is what I meant. Chapter 3, here we go. King Nebuchadnezzar, we're going to come back to Nebuchadnezzar, by the way. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 60 cubits high, 6 cubits wide. That's about 90 feet high and 9 feet wide. Use your imagination. And set it up on the plain of Dura. Bible scholars, plain of Dura, by the way, is where the Tower of Babel was. In the province of Babylon, verse 2, he then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all these other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, all these people that he mentioned, okay, assembled for the dedication of the image that the king Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, nations and peoples of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. Remember, the Babylonian empire rules of the known world. In other words, under the Babylonian Empire are people from every nation, every tongue, every tribe, every racial, every cultural group. This edict is for everybody. Verse 5, as soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zipper, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold the king Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Verse 6, whoever does not fall down and worship will be immediately thrown into the blazing furnace. Death by cremation was one of the tactics that the Babylonians used. Verse 7, therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the nations and prophets of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Verse 8, at this time, some astrologers came forward and they denounced the Jews. They said to the king Nebuchadnezzar, may the king live forever. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold, and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there's some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no pension to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you've set up. Furious with rage. Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar said to them, is it, is it true, Shedrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I've set up? In other words, he's incredulous. He's saying, I'm going to give you another chance because I can't believe you're actually not. Now, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, if you're ready to fall down and worship the image, of, image I've made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you'll be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God is going to be able to rescue you from my hand? And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves. 
before you in this matter. We'll, we'll stop right there. See how far we go. What's the image? What was the golden image? Most of you think it was a Nebuchadnezzar, right? No. Why? Well, number one, the text never says that. And actually, there's no record that any Babylonian kings were actually worshipped as gods or divine, given divine status. It just wasn't a part of their culture. Some people said, well, it had to be one of the Babylonian gods. But again, it's deliberately not mentioned which Babylonian god. There's lots of places here where it could have been specifically mentioned which Babylonian god, but it doesn't. The hint, though, is already given to us. Did you guys listen? Look at your Bibles. Verse 14. Verse 14. Where it says, is it true, this Nebuchadnezzar, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I've set up? In other words, the image is not one particular Babylonian god, and it's not Nebuchadnezzar. Well, what does the image represent then? Most scholars say the image represented, listen to it very carefully, the gods of the Babylonian empire, or more specifically, the spirit and the power of the Babylonian empire. What's going on here? Think about the Babylonian empire. You have people from every tribe, every nation, every language who have their own gods. They have own religions. And Nebuchadnezzar is not coming and the edict is not. This is very important. It's not you must worship the Babylonian gods instead of your gods. What he's saying is you must worship the Babylonian gods in addition to your gods. Hold on to that. In my empire, you're free to worship any god that you say you worship. But you can't worship that god exclusively. You can't worship that God as the God or the only God. In my empire, you're free to worship your God. It, go ahead. Go, go, go ahead and worship your God. But I need you in my empire to admit that other gods are just as valid. Other gods are just as good. And the way that you prove that is that you'll come and worship the image I've set up. Now, listen, guys. Why is he doing that? He's smart. Part of this is political calculation. He wants peace in his realm. And he doesn't want various tribes or nations fighting with each other over their religion. Over their... So part of this is political. But here's what it meant. It meant that you had to privatize your faith. And privatizing your faith had very little to do with, I'm not allowed to share my faith or the gospel out in public. No, privatizing your faith meant that you could worship the God, Yahweh, in private. But in public, you have to be like everybody else. Oh, you're, you're free to worship your God. Say that he's exclusive, so on and so forth. But I'm going to need you to bow down to the image just like everybody else. Let me bring this home for you. The culture that we live in says, you could worship Jesus, but in public, you got to be like everybody else. 
Okay, some of you still aren't with me. Okay. In private, go to church on Sundays. Do your two-hour thing. But Monday through Friday, we need you to be like everybody else. Okay, let me just give you some examples. If this is still not hitting home, let me give you like three, four examples. Here's a number. Can you put the next slide up, please? $935.50. You know what that represents? That represents how much a typical American spent last year on the holidays, buying stuff. In total, in total, last year during the holidays, Thanksgiving, Christmas, Americans spent, next slide please, $655 billion. This year, 2017, Thanksgiving holiday, here's what's projected. Next slide please. We're projected that a typical American who spent almost $1,000, $1,000 shopping, getting stuff, whatever. And in total, next slide please, $662 billion. I went on Google and I said, GDP, $662 billion. There's like 17 countries in the world whose GDP is higher. That means that over 150 some countries in the world, their GDP is less than what an American will spend during the holidays. What does this mean? You could say you're a Christian, but if you're just as materialistic as everybody else, you have bowed down to the golden image. You could say you're a Christian. I could say I'm a Christian. But if in the next five, six weeks, or throughout the year for that matter, if we're just as consumeristic, just as materialistic, just as individualistic, it don't matter. I worship the God of Yahweh. You have bowed down to the golden image. Can I ask you something? What's the ratio of how much you spend on yourself and how much you give away? Are you, are you constantly like trying to simplify your lifestyles we talk about so that you have more and more to give? A self-absorbed life will always come at the cost of everybody else. Can I give you another example? Are you in business world? Or just your work, period? And where you are, unless you're ruthless and like barely legal, <laughs> some of you are laughing because like, you just described my workplace. Unless you're like ruthless and barely legal, not just with your competitors, but frankly with your coworkers, you can't survive there. You can't be promoted. If you're a Christian who says, you know what? I'm just gonna be just as ruthless, barely legal, you could worship Yahweh on Sunday, but you have bowed down to the golden image. Come on, guys. Jeez. So what if we come and sing these songs and we're in small groups? Like, really, for real, for real, are you and I bowing down to the golden image? Two more examples. The next one. Who are you sleeping with? Who are you sleeping with? Peter, you're going to go there. Yeah, I'm going to go there. Because you have to talk about sex, money, and power, right? Premarital sex in America, the most comprehensive study probably of sexual behavior of young people. 
And they studied two groups of people, two groups of people, college-educated males, 18 to, 30, 18 to 23, unmarried, college-educated males, 18 to 23. One was raised in communities where they said, the Bible says, and our community says, the sex before marriage is wrong. The other community nah, doesn't believe. Do you know what the percentage of was of people who remain sexually chaste at the end of the study? In the first group who said, we don't believe that, 23%. In the second group, 28 there's hardly any difference. There's hardly any difference between the church and none. We are bowing down to the golden image. We are just like everybody else. By the way, if you're against Christianity or reject Christianity because some parts of the Bible you find offensive, you're assuming that if there is a God, he wouldn't say anything that upsets you. Does that make any sense? Moving on. One more. Some of us grew up where people talked about dangers of sex but not dangers of power. See, this is new community. I ain't going to just pick on sex and not talk about something else. Look at all the problems in our culture today. Which is more problematic, sexual sins or people abusing power? Hey, hey, hey. Come on, church. Sexual abuse, sexual harassment, social economic injustice. It's because people in our culture today say, what? I'm going to use power, privilege to promote myself or those in my inner circle. And I've told you guys over and over again, my favorite quote from Walter Brueggemann, the righteous and the just are those who are willing to disadvantage themselves to advantage the community, and the unrighteous are those who are willing to disadvantage the community to advantage themselves. Give me one minute. Are you aware of this new tax bill that's about to pass? By the way, your pastor isn't partisan. I talk about politics. You know why? Because your church never discipled you to engage politics well. So I need to disciple you. Can I get an amen? So here's the bill. Most people say that it's going to add $1.5 trillion to the deficit. 1.5. And most people say that it's going to benefit the wealthiest of the wealthy and corporations. And most people say that it's going to come at the expense of the poor, families, young Cutting assistance and aid. Do you know that the latest Pew Research said 91% of those in Congress identify themselves as Christians? 91%. To them, I want to ask this. Then how do you make sense of Micah 6, 8 says what? And what does the Lord ask of you? To do justly? To walk humbly? But here's the thing. Don't just look at them. I'm asking you. How are you using your power? How am I using my power? Don't look at other people and go, well, at least I'm not like them. How are you and I using whatever social privilege we have? If you're a doctor, how do you treat your nurses? How do you treat the med techs? How do you treat the janitors? If you're a business person, how do you treat your employees? If you're a parent, how do you treat your children? If you're a teacher, how do you treat your students? How are you using whatever social privilege that you have? We live in a culture that says, I... I'm okay with you worshiping God, but in public, bow down. Are you and I bowing down to the golden image?
Have we bowed down to the golden image? Real quick, I want to say, Shedrach, Meshach, and Abednego, of course, had none of it. They, they would have none of it. Get, let me just take you real quick to, 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 to a passage in the New Testament epistles uh, where, where actually the apostle Peter is writing and he's addressing this very thing. Peter, okay, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. Peter says, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Word aliens and strangers, aliens and strangers, and, and if you've been around for a while, you've heard me talk about this. Peter is writing to Romans and Roman cities, Greeks and Greek cities. In other words, people whose race is the same as the people they've been around, whose families have been there for generations. And yet Peter says, when you become a Christian, you become a foreigner, a stranger in your own world. You guys, listen to me. If you have not bowed down to the golden image, you're going to seem a little odd. You're going to seem a little strange. You're going to seem a little bit off to the rest of the world. Not because that's your goal, but it's the inevitable result of following Jesus. And Peter goes on and says, live. Everybody say live. live. Come on, like you mean it. Live. Live such good lives amongst. Everybody among. Among the pagans. Here's the cool thing. What Peter says, aliens and strangers, is one technical Greek word. And it didn't describe tourists or people who came to work for a few months and then go home. It described people who lived, though they were from another race, another different country, who lived in the town of the city that they come in. In other words, Peter is saying, if you have not bowed down to the image, even though your citizenship is in heaven, you're going to be the best citizen on earth. Why? Shedrach, Meshach, and Abednego are not living in some Christian bubble. Do you see that? They're not. They're, 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 they're doing Jeremiah 29. They're working for the peace and prosperity of the city. They're working in the public sector for God. They're working for the government. Yee! <laughs> look at verse 12. Though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds. See your good deeds. And good deeds in the New Testament rarely talks about uh, 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 morally good. It talks about doing good. They may see your good deeds, your service, your action, your life, and glorify God on the day he visits us. And I want to say this as clearly as possible. In our culture today of fake news, in our culture today of alternative facts, we need more truth tellers than ever before. We need more people to speak up. We need more people to speak out about what truth is. Having said that, 95% of the time, the best way to defend absolute truth in a culture of moral relativism is to live it. The best way to defend culture, defend absolute truth in our culture today is to live it. How you and I live will speak much louder than what we say we believe. Ralph Waldo Emerson, I got to quote Ralph Waldo Emerson, said this, what you do speak so loudly that I can't hear what you're saying. When Christians today go, how do I live my life in a distinct way in this culture? My best advice to you, look at what Shedrach and Meshach and Abednego did. In verse 16, what do they do? What do they do? They say, King, we do not need to defend ourselves. 
Look at Nebuchadnezzar. He's furious. He's foaming at the mouth for crying out loud. Calm. Respectful. King, we do not need to defend ourselves. Nebuchadnezzar, coming through all kinds of arguments, what kind of a God would put you in this situation? If your God is so great, why am I about to kill you? They don't come back with arguments. What do they come back with? They live out their absolute truth by doing the exact opposite of what Nebuchadnezzar is doing. The best way. I'm not against arguments and defending the Christian faith. We need more, like I said, truth tellers in our culture today. But the best way to defend absolute truth in our culture today is for your lifestyle to show people who Jesus is. When I think about my Muslim friends, let me just be real. I don't just think about arguing with them about why Jesus is the one true God. I want to start by not bowing down to the golden image and worshiping false gods of materialism and consumerism and greed and power. When I think about my atheist friends, I don't just think about arguing with them and defending why Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. I said this last week. I actually talked to a brother in Christ who said, Peter, I have yet to see a Christian who lived their life in such a way that their life said, Jesus is enough for me. In a culture of tolerance in which Christians are perceived as angry and intolerant, are we not called to go beyond tolerance to radical love? Can I get an amen? See, church, maybe we don't look like Jesus today because we don't love like Jesus. If our non-believing culture has stopped listening to us, maybe the answer is not just shouting louder. Maybe it's living it out. We have generations of people who could spout good theology and good doctrine, and yet there's a disconnect between what they say they believe in their life. <sighs> Will you give me like a minute to critique our culture real quick? If you're not a Christian. In a truly tolerant society, shouldn't there be room for belief in the exclusivity of Christ? Thank you, Dan. I'm glad you're with me. You guys, in a truly tolerant society, think about this. Critique the culture. Don't just... In a truly tolerant society, we're open. There should be room for someone who says, I believe that Jesus is the one true God. But our culture is very tolerant on the surface. It says, well, everybody has their own gods until you say Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And they all of a sudden become intolerant. That's inconsistent and hypocritical. Tolerance isn't about not having a belief system. Tolerance is about how you treat people who you disagree with. And when you do, the Bible says, they will reject you and respect you. I got to move on. 
When you live the way of Jesus, when you have not bowed down to the golden idol, they will reject you and respect you. On one hand, it says they will accuse you. They'll vilify you. They'll persecute you. They'll ridicule you. They'll misunderstand you. They will reject you. Listen, you guys, listen, listen, listen. When you go to work tomorrow, no matter how good your intentions are, no matter how good your heart is, you will get a bloody nose once in a while. You will get one on the chin once in a while. It's the inevitable result of following Jesus. So don't be surprised. Don't freak out. If you follow the way of Jesus, there will be persecution. There will be people who will criticize you. But the Bible says you'll also be respected. They'll see your life. They'll see how you live. And there'll be some who will be struck by your life and they'll say, why do you do what you do? How, how is it that you live with such poise, such peace, such calm, such love? How, can I ask you this? When is the last time you had someone who is not a Christian say to you, because you were up close with them, you did life with them, they saw you, say to you, you're remarkably different. Why? They'll reject you. I respect you. Are we really comfortable? Seriously, guys, are you and I just, in other words, you're never getting a bloody nose. You're never getting head on the chin. Why? Because there's nothing different about you from the rest of the world. You are just like, I am just like the rest of the world. And they just leave us alone. You're just like me. But they're also drawn to you. Are your coworkers saying, Are you different? Are your neighbors saying, why do you do that? <sighs> Verse 17, almost done here. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver you from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Can I ask you a question? Would you have bowed down to the image? Would you have bowed down to the image? Here's the rationale I think some of us would have used. It's one time. Just one time. By the way, how many of us have fallen for that enemy's trap? It's just one time. It's never just one time. Or mom will never know. Dad will never know. I live far from here. Or we'll just slip in real quick and slip out real quick. Nobody will know. Or He's been real nice to us. He gave us a house. He gave us a nice job. Or my favorite of them all, and you'll see why. If I bow, I won't die. And I'll actually be useful to God. <laughs> Come on. I'm not the only one. Come on now. And God wants me to be useful to him. So therefore... I'll just bow down real quick once so I can be used by God for the rest of my life. Can I get it? No, don't say amen to that. But they don't. Do you know why? Here's why. 
Because these young men believe God and they believe God's word when God said, you shall not make any idols in my image and bow down to it. And that was enough for them. You guys, that was enough for them. For them, it was enough that God simply said, trust me. Because if you trust me, I'm going to take care of you in your obedience. And if that means that we die in the furnace, we die. If that means that God intervenes supernaturally and delivers us, he intervenes supernaturally and delivers us. But we king are going to obey God. And that was it. First sermon of the series, I put this up there and I said, we're going to come back to it. What is faith? Faith is not believing despite evidence. Faith is obeying in spite of consequences. Faith is not believing despite evidence. Faith is obeying in spite of consequences. Church, what is right won't always be popular. And what is popular won't always be right. Are you willing to stand for truth even if you're the only one standing? Am I willing to stand for truth? even if I'm the only one standing. These young men said, we're going to make our stand. And we're going to trust God. Do you know what happens to them? We're going to come back to that next week. But Cece, come on up. I need to end with Nebuchadnezzar. Everybody, please give me your attention just for a couple minutes. I told you at the beginning, and it made some of you really uncomfortable, that it's possible to have an encounter, have a revelatory image of God, and never be changed. Why, please listen, is Nebuchadnezzar not converted? Why does he say at the end of chapter 2, your God is the God of gods and King of kings, but not my God is the God of gods. His spiritual journey, and we're going to see next week and the week after, we see that all he does is simply take God and fit God into his pagan understanding of who God is. Nebuchadnezzar is attracted to God for two reasons and two reasons only, power and fear. Let me tell you something. Please give me your ears. If the reason why you live the Christian life is because of power and fear, you could be converted but never changed. Convicted but never changed. Verse 15 of chapter 3, he says, what God will be able to rescue you. Nebuchadnezzar's understanding of God is just like everyone else in their pagan culture. If there is a God, then it's what he does for me. It's his power. It's what he is able to do that enables me, allows me to worship him. Nebuchadnezzar is functioning at his core 
for the same reasons as some of us oftentimes go to God. We say, God, I will obey so that I could be blessed. I will obey so I could get my prayer answered. I will obey so that hardships and trials won't come into my life. If your fundamental understanding of Christianity is I obey so that I can get from God, I obey so that I could be blessed, I obey so that I could receive benefits, I obey so that God just will not send trials and hardships into my life, this thing called Christianity just will not make any sense. Because how do you reconcile that with the fact that the most righteous, perfect, obedient person who ever lived hung on a cross. If your motivation for why you've been obedient, if your motivation for why you lived the Christian life is for power, your heart will not be changed. And then there's other, which is fear. At the end of chapter two, Nebuchadnezzar looks at God and he says, I get it, I get it now. Your God is more powerful than my God's. And just like some of us, there could be external changes because of fear, fear of punishment, fear of condemnation, fear of what will happen if I don't. And that will never change you or me. There has to be a deeper motivation. What is that? I end with this. First John chapter 4, verse 18. There's no fear in love. Perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment and the one who fears is not made perfect in love. Religion says, why obey? So that I could find God. The gospel says, why obey? Because God has found me. Religion says, why obey? Because if I don't, he will abandon me. The gospel says, why obey? Because at an inestimable cost, he has promised me that he will never, ever abandon me. Is that good news to anybody? Religion says, why obey? Because I find him useful. The gospel says, why obey? Because I find him beautiful. The gospel says the whole reason for why I believe, why I obey, is because I'm already accepted. I'm already loved. I'm already an object of infinite love and mercy. I am the child of God. That is why I obey. Conversion. Have you been charmed but not changed? Have you been convicted? but not truly converted, why are you obeying? Go to him, not because he's useful, but go to him because he's beautiful. Pray with me. Pray with me. Sunday in this room are folks 
who may have been convicted but never converted, who may have been charmed but never changed. And I'm telling you, I am telling you, if you're here and the foundational motivation for why you obey and believe is because of power or fear. It's because of what you can get God to do for you or you're afraid of being punished. You might never experience transformation. Have you encountered the gospel, the hope, the hope that our Messiah came to bring? Can you honestly say this morning, as you stand in a second, to sing this song, I obey because I love you. I obey because I cherish you. I obey because you're my treasure. I obey because you're my hope. I obey because you're God. Go to him. He is the way. He is the truth. 